Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, December 9th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And if you remember on last week's show, we revisited our own Matt Frankel's list of bold predictions for 2019 and how those have worked out so far, given that we're getting ready to wrap up 2019. Well, this week we're jumping into Matt's bold predictions for 2020, and I think you're going to like them. But first, today we have another installment of Between Two Fools. Caroline Feeney is CEO of Individual Solutions for Prudential Financial, which provides financial advice and other outcome-oriented solutions for consumers. Feeney began her career with Prudential in 1993 and currently serves as Prudential's representative for the National Association for Female Executives and serves on the Executive Roundtable. Caroline, I've been looking forward to this interview because we get to talk about something that it feels like it's starting to gain some serious traction, and that is the evolving role of women in finance, the challenges and the opportunities, what's working and what's not. So, let's go ahead and start with the idea that traditionally, historically, the financial services industry has been a male-dominated industry. Given that, what have been the biggest drivers that have helped you succeed in the industry today? Yes. So, uh, Jason, I had the opportunity to start with Prudential about 25 years ago and uh, started on the sales and distribution side. And so, certainly, as you do say, it's it's been a male-dominated industry historically and, and certainly was 25 years ago. And I think there were a number of factors that, that helped me along. Um, first and foremost, like most things in, in people's career, um, I, I never felt the need to go it alone. So, I, I did have uh, the good fortune to have great advocates who supported me and mentored me along the way. Um, I also um, had the early experiences of dealing with clients firsthand. And I think in those interactions, I I really did gain a a passion and understanding for the difference um, that I could make in this business um, with clients first and foremost, and, and then had the opportunity to move on fairly quickly to help lead individuals on the sales and distribution side, and you know, certainly had my fair share of challenges, uh, and um, and I and candidly had my fair share of occasions where people made it known to me that maybe I didn't fit in or or, or didn't belong, and I I think those are those times you have a decision to make, um, and my decision at that point um, was to uh, persevere through some of those challenges. Um, I also have taken some risks along the way in my career that have, that have paid off. Um, and more importantly, I, I do think also, Jason, I recognized very early on in my career, I wasn't one of the guys. I didn't need to pretend to be one of the guys. And, and my best bet was to just um, be myself and, and be authentic. And I, I've tried to carry that through the rest of my career as well. So, that's an interesting point you made there in in during your career people making you feel like you you didn't necessarily fit in or you, you perhaps didn't belong, so to speak. And, and, and I wonder, does it feel like to you, as time has gone on, do you feel like that is changing? Is it, is it becoming less and less an environment where women are, are being made to feel like they aren't meant to be there, they don't belong? I mean, is, is, that, yeah. is that really improving? Yeah, I absolutely believe, Jason, um, that it has absolutely changed over the you know the 25 years I'm talking about when I started and and it's it's um it's good for me to see that that has changed. That being said, while we've made enormous progress, Jason, I still think there's some some opportunity for additional progress. It is still very much uh, male dominated. 
Um, but, but I think the good thing that we're seeing is we're seeing uh, more women who are finding their career path in financial uh, planning or as a financial advisor. Um, that then is leading to um, women in leadership roles on in, in financial services. And I think the more that you see that, I think sometimes you'll have women come in and they see role models around them. So I think it's it's uh, this virtuous cycle that, that happens, and it is very different. Well, you've been with Prudential, and I, and I want to talk about this for just a minute because culture is a very important um, issue here at The Motley Fool. We, we are very business-focused investors. We, we, we care more about the businesses in the longer term and the culture that these companies are, are uh, developing and growing. And, and, and looking back, you've gone, you've been at Prudential since 1993, so yeah. you're, you're coming up on three decades with one company, which I mean, today's day and age, that's really not as common as it yes. would have been back then. So, yes. number one, what got you to Prudential? And then number two, given the challenges that you faced early on, just with yes. the greater the greater challenges that women face in finance, what it is about what is it about about Prudential that has kept you there? That's kept you growing? That's made you excited to be a part of that family? Yeah. Well, in addition to the three decades, Jason, making me feel uh, old this morning. <laughs> well, that was not the intention, <laughs> but uh, it, 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 I didn't say that. You did. <laughs> I did say that. I did say that. Well, what I what I would say is, you know, if you had actually told me 25 years ago, I'd, I you know I'd still be here um, with the company all these years later. I actually wouldn't have believed it. I I can boil it down to a few reasons as to, you know, why I'm still here, why I love this company and why I feel so good about what we're doing and, and, and so positive about our culture. Um, you know, I, I would say first and, and foremost, and I, I mentioned this earlier, I have never felt, even though you have challenges through your career, though I was going it alone, I had um, so many, actually many male um, allies and advocates along the way who um, were there to mentor and support me and sponsor me and and so I think that has made a difference. Um, I would also say that um, we, we are an organization um, that when we see things that, that aren't right, we, we react. And so when I think about making sure we're building an environment that is inclusive, um, we're very much front and center on that. And we take it very seriously. And so I think that matters to me. It's always mattered to me. Um, that I believe in senior leadership and where they're taking the organization. And I, I think at this point in my career, um, I do believe as though I'm, I'm trying to be part of that solution, which is, you know, how can you help pay that forward? And so I make it a point um, in my current role to mentor and coach many women, not just within Pro, but actually across the financial services industry. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the sword that cuts both ways, right? I mean, the yes. you're at a place it seems where you love to be. You you yes. you love the company you work for. The culture is strong. I mean, I, I feel very much the same way, and it's I, I enjoy watching the years go by as a motley full employee. And then yes. the flip side of that is, well, I do recognize that every year that goes by, I'm a year older as well. But hey, you know, yes. with that comes experience. So at least we yes. have that, right? Yes. Uh, okay. Well, let's get back to uh, this this issue of women in finance, and particularly, I want to talk about uh, women as breadwinners, because there's plenty of data out there that tells us now that the share of breadwinning or co-breadwinning mothers has more than doubled since 1967. Now, that's not as big of a surprise maybe now as it would have been 10 or maybe 15 years ago, but Prudential recently released data on the opportunities and the challenges facing women in the workplace. And this seems more relevant than ever, given that breadwinner status. So, can you talk to us a little bit about that research, what did that research find that stood out to you? 
Yeah, so there were a, f- a few things in terms of the, the research, actually the research that, that Prudential did. I mean, one of the things that I'd say before I even get into those research findings, though, is I, I do think, um, as you state, with more and more women being breadwinners or, or uh, primary breadwinners or sole um, breadwinners in their family, I think it's really important to just take a step back and recognize, first, women's importance uh, in the economy overall. I mean, the reality is women do stand to receive the lion's share of the estimated $3.2 trillion that's going to be transferring to the next generation in the U.S. in the coming years. But even though you, you think about all of that wealth that women do control, uh, there do continue to be unique challenges when you look at the relationship with women and money. And that's where it goes um, squarely to the research that Prudential has done. And really what we've done, Jason, is we've locked that into or categorized it into four different buckets. Um, the first of which I think is really unique is, is this time gap, uh, which tells us that working women are spending 28 hours per week on unpaid work, um, which is 65% greater than working men on average. And, wow. And it's, you know, it's all of, it's funny that you say that. I usually do get a wow with that. And, and I, and, and it's all important work. You know, there, it's the things like household chores and, and caregiving, as I said, all important work, but. Um, women are not getting paid for it. And then you also have the, the very well, real wage gap um, where women on average you know, continue to make 81 cents for every dollar earned by the male worker. Um, and, and then you also continue to have what we call the longevity gap, which, which remains very real. Uh, women still are living five to six years longer on average than men. And of course, if you think about that, then that is obviously going to exacerbate the need for um, a longer um, funding period for retirement, could translate to higher health care costs. And then finally, the last um, uh, bucket that we found in our, in our research that is unique to women is this investment gap. Um, and, and really what that demonstrates is that women tend to invest less than men for a whole host of reasons. So rather than trying to make up for things like this time gap or the wage gap, the opposite is actually true. So I, I think the main thing is it's, it's really critically important that we actually speak openly about these challenges so women realize that they, they, aren't, um, they aren't going it alone and they don't have to go it alone. Yeah, and it, it's always been frustrating to me in regard to women investing less or not investing as much as men because there's a lot of data out there that really tells us that women are great investors, better investors than men in most cases. And it's because of that ability to take the longer view and to exercise more patience. I mean, women tend to be more patient, more deliberate, more uh, able to to take the big picture into consideration. And that really, uh, as an investor, is is of, of tremendous value. I do want to go back to one thing, because this, this is something that kills me. I don't understand why it's still the case, and it's the wage gap that you mentioned. And for the life of me, I still don't understand how we live in a world where it's not completely, totally equal pay. I just don't get it. What? Yes. Wh- why are we still talking about this? And, and when when are we going to get to a point where a woman is going to get the same amount as a man for the same yep. job that they're being hired for. Hired yeah, for. I, well, listen, I think there are certainly steps that are being taken, um, serious steps that are being taken, where, for as an example, in certain states, you actually can't be asking how much a woman is, is making as she's interviewing for a role coming into the company. There's a lot of research that also shows that women are um, less inclined 
to negotiate starting salaries than men. So, so you, you start off at an uneven playing field, and then it, the, the, it never catches up. Yeah. So I think there's a number of reasons why, Jason. Um, but I do think it's incumbent upon companies uh, like Prudential and other companies to really take those steps to say it's not okay and really do reviews uh, within the company around pay equity. And I, I think it's going to take bold steps like that to really make a difference. Okay, so I, I have two teenage daughters. A lot of our listeners have children, and, and I know yep. they would love to know what yep. we as parents can do to encourage them. And so I want to I want to talk to you a little bit about what you've learned along the way, and in particularly what you you know what you wish you knew when you were younger. You know, if you knew then what you know now. What could make a difference, and what are some of the things that we can do for our kids, particularly those of us with daughters, to help them navigate this this changing landscape? Yeah, so actually, it's great to know, Jason, you have a couple teenage daughters, and I actually have a teenage <laughs> daughter myself. And you know, one of the things that I would say is if I if I looked at notes to my younger self, and what advice would I give myself? Um, the the first thing that I would say is recognize earlier on. Um, the confidence and and the capabilities that you have and and um, and that comes across in a, in a number of different ways. But one of the things and I have so many different examples there, Jason. But one of the things that I would say is there is a very real confidence gap for women. I felt it um, through my career, um, sometimes earlier on in my career, far more than there are still occasions where I see that play out today. But one of the things that, that I would say, and I see it with women in, in the career um, place today, is that women are not as inclined to put their hat in the ring. So they might not put their name forward for a particular position unless they meet, let's say, 90% of all the job requirements. Now, you look at that, and that is very different than what you find uh, with men. Men, on average, as long as they hit about 65% of the job requirements, feel that that's good. And they can learn the rest on the job. And that very real confidence gap plays out in a number of different ways, right? They're not um, going for maybe the P&L jobs or, or other roles that would recognize them as an advancement in their career. Uh, and, and then the only other thing that I would say specifically around teenage girls, because I've been fascinated with this, <laughs> and I've really looked at all of this, and I, and I question when does this start? Because it seems to track all the way along with women, whether they're junior in their career or even, honestly, at CEO levels. It seems to just continue. And one of the things that I came across was a research study that actually showed, and this was done in 2018, Jason, the difference between teen girls and boys found that up until the age of 12, girls and boys' confidence level was very similar. However, Hmm. between the ages of 12 and 14, Girls, on average, lose one-third of their confidence, and they never get it back. That is a staggering statistic. It really is. And so, so something, you know, for, for, you know, to watch for your girls and certainly something I watch out um, for my daughter. And I think ultimately, it's incumbent then upon all of us to recognize great talent in the workplace, to tap people on the shoulder, to let them know that they're ready for the next assignment, um, to make sure, even if they don't check off every single box, how are we making sure that we're supporting the individuals in these stretch assignments? And I, I do think that that's really important because if they're not going to put their hat in the ring, how are we being proactive 
to let them know we believe they're ready for the next assignment, for the next step, for the next project, whatever that may be. Yeah, that confidence statistic is is staggering. I, I, I really didn't realize that. I mean, I, I, I would I would view our daughters as fairly self confident. Uh, I mean, they are right at that age where you know your 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 data would become more relevant. There's I, I definitely will keep an eye out for that. But yeah, that that was I, I didn't realize that. Um, okay, let's touch on financial wellness and financial literacy. It's something I think we can all agree is is an important cause. And I wanted to talk with you about this. How do you define or view the financial wellness journey, and why? Why do you believe it's, it's especially important for women? Yeah, so I, I think there's a few things. Um, one, Jason, and I mentioned earlier just the, the important role that women do play in the economy. I mean, obviously, with women being 51% of the population, they're controlling over $11 trillion of investable assets today. And, and, and I also think, obviously, I mean, retirement today can span for decades. Um, because it's oh, yeah. living longer, right, which makes retirement, in many cases, just a, a transition point rather than an end stage. And I think also coupled with the fact that the reality today is that pensions certainly have become more of a rarity, and Social Security was, was obviously never meant to be our sole source of income. So personal savings are more important than ever um, to help us, us cover those monthly expenses that continue after we retire. But for women, that savings gap is larger, um, and then the retirement income need is longer, as I said previously. And, and by the age of 85, women are outnumbering men by two to one. And so that is absolutely intensifying the need for retirement savings that is, is ultimately going to provide them um, with an ongoing uh, longer-term income stream. And, and so I think a few things. One, um, I would suggest with women – just in order to solve some of these challenges, doing their homework, right? Taking a very realistic assessment of how they view their long-term financial goals, um, what are the assets they believe they have today. And I, I think the thing is, with women in particular, what we've seen is that sometimes they either won't have the time or they will view it as, I can't afford um, any financial professional guidance, be it a financial advisor, um, or they don't have the assets. And so I think understanding that there are so many options these days for women and, and, and men, for everyone, to really learn how to be more financially secure. Um, we're in an age today, obviously, where it doesn't have to be face-to-face. There's so many online tools and resources that allow people to be more self-directed. Um, there are hybrid approaches where you can have the combination of online tools and advisors that you can speak to via phone. And, and obviously, finally, there's that face-to-face advisor that can hold your hand a little bit more, and particularly when it becomes more comprehensive. And, and so I do think it's so important um, for women to understand that this is one where they don't have to go it alone. They don't have to be the expert. Um, they already have so many other responsibilities, and, and certainly this is one area where they can rely on a professional. To help answer their questions. Yeah, and that's you know that's it's a subject that we we work on a lot here at the Motley Fool. Financial literacy. It's a cause we believe in greatly, obviously. And it, 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 another thing I've noticed is that oftentimes 
it's it's just the the resources at home. There are so many parents that just still aren't really aware of all the options that are out there as well. I mean, they haven't necessarily gotten that financial education that helps them stem that interest in their children and and to learn more and whatnot. So it it really is it really is one of those things that. it's going to require constant attention, and it's going to take generations to continue really to grow that interest and that knowledge. You talked a minute there about women consulting financial professionals, and I think that's an interesting way we could wrap up the discussion here, because going back to women as breadwinners of their households, there's data out there that tells us that you know women could be working more with financial professionals. So, I mean, what are the opportunities out there? How can we how can we make that happen, and what are the opportunities there for companies and individuals to to stoke those relationships and, and build that trust? Yeah, so so I think I think there's a few things. Well, first of all, I think conversations like this. I I do think the more we are having these conversations, I do think it creates more awareness, um, and you know, women are hearing that uh, I'm not alone. I might be thinking this. I might be worried about it. I might be losing sleep about it, but but I'm not alone. And I I do think it's incumbent upon. Uh, companies that like Prudential, obviously, um, squarely in the financial services space, um, to be having these conversations to provide education in many different mediums, whether that be through online tools and resources, whether that be through advisors that are there. Um, And I think for for women in particular, this is so much less about a transaction, and, and this is not about a particular solution. Um, I, I do think that it is important, um, especially research we show that you know women um, really do want to take the time to have to make sure that somebody's understanding their holistic needs um, and the challenges that they are facing. Um, then it's about matching up the solution that will help solve that challenge. Um, so I do think it's a very different approach that companies need to be taking. It's a more holistic approach. Um, it's taking the time. Um, to provide all of the necessary education, and so then the, the women can take the time to say, what what is right for me, and where do I feel right in t- terms of taking the, the next step? Um, but we have seen um, very specifically the importance of relationships, be it face-to-face or at least connection um, with a company that's going to provide all the, the tools and resources that they can avail themselves of. And, and I, I think making it convenient for people. I, I do believe, I mean, at the end of the day, we really have an entire advice continuum. And I do think it is so important um, for, for companies, and, and we stress this at Prudential, which is how do you meet somebody? How do you meet that woman where she wants to be met? How does she want to engage? And, um, and, and in what manner does she want to engage with, with, with this company and with um, the financial advice she needs, and we need to meet them there on their own terms. I think that's so important. She is the CEO of Individual Solutions for Prudential Financial. Caroline Feeney, thanks so much for taking the time to join us this week. Thank you very much, Jason. It was a pleasure speaking with you this morning. And now joining me in the studio via Skype, it's the man of the hour, the man with the bold prediction, certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going? Pretty good. My predictions are a little bit negative compared to last year's, so not to spoil the fun, but hopefully everyone still likes me after this 
this discussion goes on. How can they not like you? Come on, <laughs> you're mad. Everybody likes you, buddy. It's all right. I mean, listen, they got to be bold, right? If they're not bold, then what's the point in even doing them? Uh, and with that yeah, said, they'll only they'll only not like me if I'm, if I'm correct. <laughs> if I'm wrong, they'll be fine with it. Well, let's jump right into it then. Let's give you a chance to explain yourself. I'm going to read your bold prediction, and then I want you to tell us why. Uh, and we'll start with number one here. Warren Buffett will make his biggest acquisition, I think, ever. Is that correct? Yes. And that, so I, I wanted to kind of make this a little bit bolder than last year's version because last year I was wrong if you listened to the last week's show. Um, at the time I made the prediction last year, Buffett had about $100 billion in cash to work with. Um, given the, that he likes to keep about $20 billion in reserves at all times, that, gives, that gave him about $80 billion to work with. Now that's ballooned to $128 billion, so even subtracting the reserves, that's well over $100 billion to work with. Um, Berkshire has fantastic credit, too, so they could potentially borrow if they needed to. Um, but I'm going to say that 2020, and you'll when you see the rest of my predictions, you'll kind of see why I'm thinking it's going to be a great market for Buffett. Um, I think he's going to you know, buy Berkshire's biggest acquisition ever. The most they ever spent on an acquisition, I believe, was in like the $30 billion range. Uh, I think it was Precision Cast Parts, actually. Um, so I'm I'm thinking they're going to buy something that's like double that price or more. Now, how does that compare to Burlington Northern? Was was, was another big deal, right? Yeah, that was a big one too. I, I believe that was in the twenty to thirty billion range. Gotcha. Uh, but don't quote me on that because I'm not totally sure. But I, I know in the thirty billion range was probably the most Berkshires ever spent on a single acquisition. Well, we are wondering when he's going to pull that trigger, so maybe 2020 is it. I like that prediction. I think there's something to that. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what it is, but there's plenty of stuff out there. Um, let's look at number two here, the stock market. Listeners, go ahead and take a seat here, because you're not going to like this news. The stock market will have a rough year. Yeah, well, there's a few reasons I say this. For one thing, um, and this might not sound like that bold of a prediction. You're hearing all these recession predictions and people saying the market's going to crash if um, if uh, the Democrats take the White House. But that's not why I'm saying this. And uh, In the average election year, including when Democrats win the White House, the average is an, almost a 10% gain for the year. Um, other than 2008, when Barack Obama won, which we all know what was going on in 2008, so that's not really... That's kind of a special case. You'd have to go all the way back to 1940 to find a year a negative stock market in a year when a Democrat won. So I don't think that alone will do it. I just think there's a lot that could go wrong this year. The trade war is has become so unpredictable and has gone on so much longer than we've thought. Um, the global economy is not doing that great. Um, economic growth in the U.S. is slowing down. Um, I don't really see any major legislation like like the tax reform 2.0 that you keep hearing about i don't see any of that happening this year so i think there's a lot more that could drive the stock market down than could drive it higher and it i i mentioned that the stock market usually goes up during an election year here but it depends who gets elected there are, you know some of the the democrats uh, like elizabeth warren for example who's talking about higher regulation specifically could be a really negative catalyst for you know, the banking industry, which we cover very closely, among others. So there's a lot more that could become negative catalysts than positive ones this year. 
And that's kind of where this prediction came from. I, I think it'll finish in the red, but not, I'm not predicting another 2008, but I'm saying, you know, single digit percentage down is, is likely. Well, that's certainly plausible. Um, in, in along with that idea that the stock market will have a rough year, bold prediction number three is that the U.S. economy will actually fall into recession. Yeah, there's, I mean, a lot of people are saying that, you know, the economy's strong. There's no reason to think a recession's coming, even though that we've, haven't had a recession since 2008. Um, you know, economic growth has has slowed down quite a bit uh, globally. Um, just kind of one statistic: growth forecasts are at their lowest level since the since 2008. Um, the trade war isn't really showing many signs of progress. We keep hearing about the phase one deals right around the corner. We have an agreement in principle, things of that nature, but we really haven't seen any tangible results of the trade war whatsoever. Um, and not to mention that if one of the more left-leaning candidates wins, we could really see, you know, negative catalysts for certain sectors that could trigger, I mean, anything negative for the financial sector that could, that would, could hurt consumer confidence could be a recession catalyst. Um, and not to mention, remember that the yield curve inverted earlier this year, and that usually is a nice forward indicator of a recession that, there's no real set time frame, but you know, pretty much every recession has been preceded by a yield curve inversion, and, and we saw that this past year. So experts are putting the chance of a recession as about one in four this year. I, I think it's much higher than that. I would not be at all surprised if we saw a recession in 2020. Um, I'm actually putting it at about a, a three-quarters chance. So We'll have to wait and see, and this is one that I hope I'm wrong about, and I'm sure all, all the <laughs> listeners hope I'm wrong about as well, but I could easily see it happening. Well, I mean, you could just sit there and scream recession every year, and then eventually you'll be right. So, I mean, like, you know, listen, that's just one of those things that comes <laughs> with the territory, Jason. right? <laughs> it's one of those things that comes with the territory, and uh, and certainly, I mean, I think we're just we're getting ready to wrap up, I think, the first decade with no recession and Many, many, many decades. So, uh, you know, I guess you could make the argument that we're overdue, and it certainly does. Uh, we we know how we know how these these uh, cycles work. I mean, there's there's just a, a culling that takes place, and that's just a, a natural byproduct of it. Um, now, this is something we talked a little bit about last week, and we talked a lot about it through the year. We've seen some examples thus far, but you think we'll see more consolidation in the fin- uh, the financial sector? Yeah, and actually, um, it's interesting that that we're talking about this day because the BB&T and SunTrust merger actually is just finalized today. Uh, you can actually invest in Truist Financial uh, on the stock market now. I still can't get past um, that name, Matt. I can't get past that name. I know, but when you look back, a lot of you know company names seem to be silly at first, but then they become household brands. And <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a recognizable name. It's easy to remember. It is. So it we'll, is. We'll see. You're I right. Mean, I mean, I I think they should have kept the SunTrust name. That was my favorite out of the out of the out of the three, just because you know most people don't know what BBNT stands for. I do, but the average consumer doesn't. True. Um, so I think SunTrust, you know, it's, it's a positive logo, the sun, and you know, it makes you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. It does. Uh, but anyway, we're getting off topic there. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and and we just saw TD Ameritrade uh, agree to be bought out by Schwab. And that's just two big deals that happened this year. But I think we could see a lot more consolidation going forward. Um, the, we've talked 
many times that the, the direction of fees in the financial industry is going to be is lower. We saw most brokers scrap commissions this year, just for one example. Um, people are very are much more conscious of the fees they pay these days, and the reason is you have all these you know online banks and online brokerages, and you know really disruptive companies like Robinhood, which is in my in my opinion the reason that all the brokers ended up scrapping their commissions. Yeah, but you you see a lot of this this war on fees, um, and that's going to really push on the margins of these banks, and the best way to mitigate that is to become more efficient. And scale is one. I mean, there's a couple ways to become efficient, but scale is dev, is pretty much a foolproof one. Um, it's efficient to have a company that's twice the size, where you have, you know, one CEO that looks over twice as much business. For example, um, that's that's just one basic example of inefficiency. But oh, sure. Um, we I think we'll see a lot of these a lot of companies attempt to merge in an effort to kind of fight off the margin pressures and to be to remain competitive in the new low-fee financial world. Um, and like, why, well, I, I don't really want to predict any specific deals. Um, I know, uh, Jason, your bold prediction last year was that Apple was going to buy Square. Yes, um, yes, that was my bold I, prediction. Thanks for reminding I, me I, it didn't I, come I, true, Matt. <laughs> well, I could still see it happening. No, Maybe you were I, just a little early with it. I think I'd prefer to see them go it on their own, but uh, I, I, you know, shoot, why you you're talking about Buffett making a big deal? I mean, Square could be something that it's right in their crosshairs. You know, I mean, they they've obviously shown a willingness to to adopt a bit more of a forward thinking mindset when it comes to the finance industry. Sure, and um, I mean, I could, I could, I mean, Buffett has no desire to own a bank, but Square doesn't have a banking license. Um, they were thinking of pursuing one for Square Capital, but to, the, to this day, they don't have one. I can see Berkshire building out some sort of, you know, financial conglomerate within its within its uh, borders. That's one thing Buffett really hasn't pursued yet. They don't. There there aren't any wholly owned financial sector companies other than insurance businesses in Berkshire's portfolio that I that I can think of off the top of my head. A lot in their stock portfolio. Right. But I could definitely see um, Square being a Berkshire target, or even. Hey, Berkshire could actually buy PayPal if they really wanted to. That's a good point. They certainly uh, could. That'd be a big acquisition. But and this prediction really has to has a lot riding on what the outcome of the election is. Um, in the current environment, I could see two big banks being allowed to buy each other. If you know, say Elizabeth Warren is president, I really couldn't see uh, J.P. Morgan acquiring Wells Fargo getting getting any traction or, or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> Um, not that that particular deal would happen, but it, it it's not out of the question in the current environment. You could, I mean, you could make an antitrust argument, but I could see that going through something. Some two of the big four buying each other in the current regulatory climate, but no no specific deals being predicted. But I do think we're going to see a lot of consolidation this year. All right, and then going into your final bold prediction, and I think this might be the boldest of them all because I'm actually not really sure where else we can go. But um, you think interest rates will fall? Interesting. Yeah, well, this is kind of contradictory to my um, prediction last year, where I yeah. predicted that interest rates were going to the Fed was going to raise rates like three times. Yep. Um, and then you know they, they kind of went the complete opposite direction. Um, but the latest proje- projections are for no more rate cuts in 2020. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, and this kind of goes with my calls for a recession 
and a falling stock market. Um, as we know, Donald Trump is the stock market president. He, he's cited the stock market success many, many times. Um, so if the market starts falling, I think you're going to see a lot of more, lot more political pressure on the Fed. Which I mean, I think there's. It's really tough to make the argument that political pressure didn't motivate any of the 2019 decisions. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah, so I think that you might see a lot more political pressure, especially if a recession or a stock market plunge happens. I think the Fed's going to end up cutting rates. I think it's going to trickle down into bond yields. I think we're going to see 10-year Treasury rates under 1.5 again. Um, mortgage rates, I think, are going to kind of test the record lows that we've, we've seen over the in a few times over the past few years. Um, and I think I don't think we're going to get negative interest rates, which we've talked about a few times that are actually happening in in some parts of Europe right now. But I wouldn't be surprised if the new normal is, say, a three percent mortgage rate or you know Treasury or you know Treasury yields in the one percent range. I wouldn't be surprised if that's our new normal for for the foreseeable future. Well, I, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, but if that is the case, I mean, shoot, I, I'm going to be making a call to to refinance our house in, in short order. I mean, even even with the low low rates that we've already got, because I mean, if you can get a little bit lower, that really can make a big difference. And so, uh, if that does come to fruition, I would encourage all of you out there with any sort of home equity uh, or or any any type of mortgage debt, certainly keep that in mind. Well, Matt, I've really enjoyed following your 2019 bold predictions, and I appreciate you taking the time to open up your mindset for us and for the listeners as far as your 2020 bold predictions. I think that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Yet, anything else you'd like to add? Well, um, our our fellow industry focused guest Dan Klein, uh, who's my pinch hitter sometimes, oh um, yeah, asked me to share his bold prediction when I when I told him what we were talking about. Oh. Um, he thinks that a major household name company, he didn't specify, will go out of business in 2020. Hmm. Um, two that he specifically mentioned, just to kind of give you an idea, were Tesla and Uber. Wow. Um, so not necessarily those, but a company of that magnitude, he thinks, is going to really surprise and surprise the, the world and go out of business in 2020. That is bold. Well, I like that. Hey, Buy five bold predictions, you get your sixth one for free, right? We'll leave it at that, (laughs) folks. Matt, thanks again. It's always nice talking to you. Always fun. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.